Please be seated. Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. As we continue in our, our study of these seven letters that were dictated by Jesus and penned by the Apostle John and given to seven different churches that were in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, each dealing with a, uh, receiving a specific message, uh, most receiving encouragements, most also receiving corrections uh, about their, their life and their spiritual vitality. We have uh, titled this series, Finding Ourselves in the Seven Churches, the Letters to the Seven Churches, because while these were written to specific uh, church bodies and would rightly be applied uh, for us, for us to look at our own church and to, uh, to shape our corporate life, churches are made up of individual believers that are brought together. And so the issues that were affecting each of those churches are very common issues that would be affecting us as well. Perhaps not everything for every church uh, that was specified is an issue for you, in which case you would receive the encouragements that others receive. But there are specific things that we may find uh, that we are either wrestling with, struggling with, uh, unaware of, that we can receive encouragement and guidance from our Lord as we receive these letters as a gift as they were intended. We come this week to the church in Thyatira, which is the, finishes the second chapter of Revelation. And as we come to God's word, let's go to him in prayer that he may speak to us by his word. But Father, we do come and we have committed this time to study uh, the scripture, study what you have given for us. But it's not our study that, and commitment that makes this worship. It is hearing your voice. For you have told us that you have spoken this, that by your spirit we may hear and even know the voice of our Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear you speaking through these words on this page and even through the message that I may bring, because we are in need of hearing and hearing from you. Lord, we come and we pray this with great confidence because you have told us that your word always produces its effect. We pray that the effect upon us would be to guide us in the right way, to renew us in our hearts and our affection for you, and to draw us to Jesus, whom this word not only is dictated by, but whose heart it reflects. Father, open our eyes that we may see you, and that as we hunger and pant and benefit from your word, that you are honored. Shape us by your word, that you may not only inform us, but form us as the followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in him who is the word incarnated that we pray. Amen. Revelation 2, verse 18. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. 
And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless us by the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I imagine that probably everyone here has had the joy of experiencing standing on the seashore, feet in the ocean, and feeling the gentle pressure of the waves pulling you one side or another while the sand is shifting and escaping from beneath your feet. It's one of the relaxing joys of being able to go to the seashore and realize you're apart from day-to-day things, just feeling the the rhythm of of the waves as they come and as they go. But we also are reminded time and again that there are at times currents whose strength are not so gentle. In fact, they are greater than our ability to stand. Some of you may have seen in the news this summer the uh, report of a family of six that had been swept out to sea was in a number of newspapers and and carried by some of the major news organizations. The family of six was taking a vacation, and they were standing along the seashore waiting. Some of them were up to waist deep when a a freak tidal surge came and swept both parents and and their four children off into the waters. And it required two lifeboats, a helicopter, an ambulance, and a cliff rescue team to uh, they were all called in order to, to work with this family. And here's the, uh, the, the details of, of their encounter. The mother battled strong currents to swim out and grab hold of her nine-year-old daughter before dragging her back to the shore. Then a surfer who had been enjoying the waves leapt into, uh, leapt, um, leapt into the sea and battled uh, the strong pull of the current to reach the couple's 14-year-old son and plucked him out of a five-foot swell. The father, meanwhile, had been sucked several hundred yards into the sea where he managed to push one of his girls, age 16, onto the rocks in hope that she would be able to cling on. But he was swept even further out uh, along with an 11-year-old daughter, but he managed to cling to a rocky gully and stay afloat until the lifeboats arrived. When the rescue teams arrived, they found the 16-year-old girl being pounded by waves The girl was able to tell her rescuer where her father and younger sister were, and the inshore lifeboat went to their aid. The family were safely reunited on the beach amid emotional scenes. The Coast Guard said that the family was lucky to be alive after they decided to take a dip after the lifeguards had gone off duty on that Monday evening. The Coast Guard said, we don't advise people to go into the water if they don't know the area, and if they do go into the water, they should only use beaches that are attended by lifeguards. 
Now, it's a vivid picture that we have here, which is the reason that I chose it. And it's one, in this case, that has a, a happy ending. Everybody was saved, everybody was rescued, and they did have the emotional response. But it's a vivid picture to us of the power that sometimes that which is beautiful and enjoyable can also have for our peril and our detriment. And it's a picture that I want us to see not so much about the seaside, but that we would realize as we consider our own lives, because the ocean currents are not the only currents that can be perilous to us. We live day by day in a a world where there are cultural currents. There are social influences. There's even government um, forces that are constantly at work. And if they begin to shape our minds, and if they dictate to us the way that we live, then they have the same power to drag us from safety into peril as the wave that showed up here on the beach of that family's vacation. It's important that we understand that. The church in Thyatira was a church that was living with the same kinds of pressures, that, uh, with forces that would drag them off, that would threaten their safety. Thyatira was, in many respects, an insignificant town of all of these churches and all of these towns. It's widely regarded to be of the least significance. It was not filled with powerful people. It was not prestigious people. It's, one of its primary functions was to be a, a buttress uh, to, for, uh, to keep people from uh, just kind of going into Pergamum where all the rich and wealthy and beautiful lived. It was a blue-collar town. and in, in many respects, we would look at it as essentially being a, a union town because the town was filled with all sorts of tradesmen and all sorts of guilds. Each trade had its own guild. And each guild had its own patron god, its own patron deity. It created a problem for the Christians who lived there. Because not being part of a guild was really not an option. If you're in a union town and you want to work, you are either part of a union or you don't work. That was the situation in Thyatira. And to make the dilemma even worse is that because each of the uh, guilds had their own particular deity, a declared son of Zeus that was reflective of their particular skill, their particular labor, membership in one of the guilds implied worship of that god. So Christians were challenged as to whether they were members and by implication declaring that they worship not only the one true God, but the the God of their vocation, or to not be part of a guild, not be able to work, not be able to provide for their family. In each of the guilds, not only did they have that scenario, but they were not apathetic in their relationship with their God. They held regular festivities and feasts celebrating their God, honoring their God, may have been an excuse to have a party, but whatever the reasons, they they came together regularly in the the name of their God, and everyone who was a member of the guild was expected to participate. If you withdrew and chose not to show up, it would become known, and you would be declared somebody who was not part of the party, somebody who would therefore get a reputation of somebody who could not be depended upon. At the end of all of these feasts, during the feast, the sacrifices were offered to these gods, and then they would butcher up everything that was sacrificed, and serve up a steak dinner for everybody. And all the participants would participate and they would eat the sacrifice, therefore declaring that they were honoring their God. 
And then when the festivity was about over, when, when the real debauchery took place and things really got exciting, things that were clearly contrary to the conscience of those who were trying to walk with Jesus, and yet there really was no escape because just like certain parties in, that uh, some have experienced when they were in college or elsewhere, if you were to try to slip out, you would, you would be ridiculed. You'd get a reputation. And it would be one that would stick with you. So Christians were stuck. Christians had this dilemma as to how do you live to honor the one true God and at the same time provide for your family? How do you work and not allow your participation to be attributed to a God that you do not honor and do not worship? And it was, it's a very real dilemma. And into this dilemma stepped a woman nicknamed Jezebel by Jesus. It's not her real name. And she is not to be confused with the Jezebel of book of 1 Kings, who was a a wicked queen. But this Jezebel's ultimate effect upon the followers of Christ was very similar to Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament uh, impact on the people of Israel. She encouraged compromise. She encouraged to take the truths of God and don't ignore them, embrace them, keep them. But then also take the cultural currents, take whatever the whim of the day and somehow synergize, sync both the standards of society and the Word of God. And when you put them together, then you would have a worldview uh, that would enable you to succeed and be free. And that was what she would teach. Essentially, it was a, a synchronization with the culture. And the effect was to compromise both the substance of faith and the moral standards of the people in the church. Now, the circumstance that the church in Thyatira was in may seem a little archaic, but it really should not seem particularly foreign to those of us who are here today. Because we are constantly experiencing waves of ideas and waves of values, whether it's in the marketplace or in the media or on the campus or wherever we go that are capable of causing riptides in our worldview, in our lives, that can drag us from solid ground into peril. Sometimes these ideas may not be the force of a rogue wave that would come and and yank us off, but they are persistent. And even though they are essentially mild as they come repeatedly, they can work erosion, if not into the substance of our faith. They can erode the joy that we have as followers of Christ. And to withdraw from those kinds of pressures, while it seems logical and may be proclaimed from a lot of pulpits, is not very reasonable, it's not very practical, because you really can't escape them They're all around us. And when we try to escape them, ignore them, we run the risk of ridicule, of gaining a reputation that that would uh, rob us of social status, and at times it may even threaten some careers. Our situation is very much like the people in Thyatira. But it's the people that are in that circumstance that Jesus speaks in this letter. And he's very clear as he's speaking. 
And he gives us a very hard word. And he challenges his people there as he's challenging us today that in the, even in those circumstances, his demand is perfect holiness in both doctrine and life. No compromise anywhere. Nowhere at all. And this is very hard. This is in many ways a very hard letter. And yet as we explore it, we're going to see that it is also a very encouraging and a very helpful letter. Because it's encouraging when we see the nature of our God revealed, even when he's being very harsh in, in some ways. And it is helpful because he guides us and gives us principles and practices and promises that will be a lifeline to those of us who find ourselves being dragged out away from the shore. Now, as I look at this, the first thing that we need to recognize, and it's really the foundation of everything in this letter, is that we need to realize that by identifying himself, Jesus shows that he is familiar. He's aware of our situation. He's aware of everything. He identifies himself with some of the descriptions in this text, and they are all important. They are all significant, both in the way that we see Jesus and also to understand how Jesus is functioning. The first that we run across is Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. It's interesting because this is the only place in all the Scripture that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. He is referred to as the Son of God. Others have come to him and say that you said that you're the Son of God, or do you believe yourself the Son of God? And he says, you say that I am. But Jesus never refers to himself as the Son of God anywhere in all of the Scripture except for here. Now, what is the reason behind that? One may be because all of the, all of the deities of the, of the guilds were considered sons of Zeus, and so Jesus may be confronting that whole mindset that they were honoring gods who were no gods and saying, you know, they may be the Son of God, I'm the Son of the one true God. But whether that was in mind or not, one thing is very evident about what Jesus is clearly doing here is he is revealing his own divine nature. And with his divine nature, he's revealing his own authority. Because he is the Son of God, he is God incarnated. He is God. And if he is God, then he has all authority. What he says is right and true and is to be, uh, is to be held to. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, establishing authority. And then he gives some kind of metaphor descriptions of himself. He says that he is one who has eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze. He also refers to himself and declares that he is the one who has risen from the dead. But it's the metaphor ones that are, are sometimes that may be uh, confusing. The feet of bronze is simply saying that he is all-powerful and he is unchanging. Scriptures define our, talk about our feet or our ways, and our feet are like dust, or some would talk about clay. Dust blows away, clay is, is malleable, it's inconsistent. But Jesus says, my feet are as burnished bronze. In other words, it is strong, it is powerful, it is sturdy, it is standing, and it's not going anywhere. His feet don't move. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't change with the whims of society or the whims of culture. His standards remain the same. That is who Jesus is. In the eyes of fire, Jesus says essentially that he knows what's going on. He sees everything, even that which we would prefer to conceal, that we work very hard to conceal from one another, and even that we prefer to think God may not be aware of. Jesus says in verse 23 that everybody is going to know that I'm the one who searches and knows hearts and minds. So he's not one who's just aware of circumstances and our actions and our works. Jesus is aware of everything, even the things that we may not be aware of ourselves and the things that we try to conceal. 
Jesus is describing himself in this way, and it can be a very menacing picture, but it is important that we stop and consider it. Because we need to ask ourselves, is this the way that we tend to think of Jesus, or are we more comfortable with the Jesus meek and mild, little baby? While those are not wrong portraits of Christ who was gentle and who is merciful, he is also powerful and strong and fierce. And it's only when we understand the full nature of Christ as he has revealed himself more that we can relate to him in a proper way. We need to relate to Jesus in the way that he has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in this way here. But Jesus is really, as he's revealing himself, he is addressing our temptation to compromise. He does that by identifying himself. In one sense, he's like the lifeguard standing on the shore that may be frequented by a bunch of foolish teenagers of whom I was once one. At least in my group, if we saw a sign that says, don't do this, danger, we thought that was for you. But we could prove our superiority by overcoming the threat of danger. Now, I understand now the only thing that it showed was our superiority of stupidity, but that wasn't, that was, but we're all prone. When we see boundaries, how far can we press those boundaries? But when there is one who is an authority, we think twice. And Jesus, by identifying himself as marking himself as the one who is on guard, the one who is there, and the one who has authority that would make you think twice about violating the standards, and yet he's there for a very good reason. The lifeguard's not there to flex muscles and to exercise authority so that he can punish. He's there to be able to be of help and to be of service. And Christ is demonstrating great love by revealing himself in this way. What Jesus is revealing to us in this letter is that he is not only aware, but he is aware of all that's good. It's an interesting thing that Jesus does here because he's coming in this very hard letter and he's confronting these people very directly and very clearly. And this is a people who, again, are are considered to be the least significant of all of these churches. Interesting is this is the longest letter that he writes. That in itself would help us to understand something about Jesus that we may not tend to think about, but there is nobody who's insignificant to Christ. Those who are seemingly least, they receive the most. Jesus knows the details of even those who would seem to slip under the radar. He knows everything that is going on. And as he is preparing to correct them, he also stops and he takes the time to commend them for a number of things that he's aware of within their body. In fact, if you look at this list of things Jesus commends them for, these are impressive people. In many ways, they're a model, an example. These are the people we would love to have described uh, of us, what there's described of them. Because as we look at the text, Jesus says in verse 19, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And so this is a complete package. These are people who serve, they love, they have substantive faith. And not only are they compelled by their faith and their love to be engaged in works, but they endure, they keep on going. Jesus says something that is quite astounding, something that he doesn't say to the other churches, something that is unusual for a lot of people in their Christian experience. Because what he says after he talks about patient endurance, he said, I know that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, what these these people had were marked by is opposite of what we often see. See, a lot of people come to faith and they're excited and they're passionate and they try everything. They're involved. They want to find where they can fit in, what they can do, how they can honor Christ, how they can enjoy him through service. But then they find a niche or they find life and they kind of settle down. And while they may not withdraw entirely 
it's not uncommon for people to do less after they've been walking for a lot period, after they've become comfortable in their faith, than what they, the zeal that prompted them in their first days. But what Jesus is saying about these people, not only do they have all of these marvelous attributes, but he's saying that while you've had that zeal, you're doing even more now than you did when you first began. These were people who, because of their love for Christ, because of their faith, they would ask essentially, what more can I do for the sake of the kingdom? And then they would go and do it. And Jesus is lifting them up and he is commending them for everything that is here. But if we think about that, I think it may remind us that even Christians who are doing well can be susceptible to compromise and yielding to compromise when the cultural pressures are significant enough. And yet our Lord finds, as he's getting ready to correct them, the desire to commend them. He demonstrates what the best of your teachers or coaches or bosses will do. In order to help you to grow and to be better, they don't come in and say, here's what you're doing wrong. But they reinforce the foundation of what is right. And their teaching then is an, a mixture of encouragement and instruction. Jesus does this for us as an expression of his character, of his love. It's the way that Jesus functions, and I am so thankful that the Lord works in that way. Because not only does it guide us, but it takes us deeper. Romans tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So it's not God coming and only pointing out the things that are wrong, and we say, yeah, you're right, and we break. But it's the kindness, the grace that we see, the love of Christ that leads us to be willing to repent, to truly confess that we are broken, that we are off course, because we are not fearing the judgment. We are recognizing the love that is instructing and guiding us. And Jesus is demonstrating that here. Because of his own love, he calls and guides and corrects. But his correction becomes pretty harsh. After he commends them, Jesus talks about this woman Jezebel, who again is not the woman of the Old Testament, but it's just a woman who has claimed an authority within the church and has some followers, and she's leading them astray, leading them in a way that compromises uh, both their, their beliefs and their moral standards. And Jesus says, look, I'm aware. And this cannot go on. And he describes the punishments that will be given. And they're harsh. They're severe. So Jesus reveals himself as the one who is aware. He judges the heart and the mind and not just what we do. And he affirms that which is good, but he also, because he's saying, my holiness will not be compromised and my demand for my people is that they grow in real holiness, is that when my people are off course, I will correct, and if they persist in that, there are consequences. He doesn't look the other way. Love is not defined as, as just overlooking. And Jesus is very firm here. There's a couple of principles that I think that are important for us to understand that are 
the guidance that Jesus is giving to us that are part of the lifeline that he's throwing to us in order to preserve us. That were apparently absent in the church in Thyatira. The first one I want us to consider is this, is that Jesus is reminding us here in this letter, at least by implication, that we as Christians are called to live in covenant relationships. Now, let me, we talk about that word in terms of our relationship with God. Our God is a covenant God. He's made a covenant, and, and we relate to him. But when we're called to live as Christians, we're called to live in those kinds of relationships with each other as well. There should never be any type, anything that would look like Lone Ranger Christianity. That's not what the Bible calls us to. When we are purchased by Christ and be made part of his family, we're made part of a family that is to be living together and involved in one another's lives. We're not just simply a group of individuals. And because we're part of one another's lives, we are responsible for one another to encourage as well as to correct. Now think about it for a moment. What kind of people were in this church, at least as we can deduce from the text here? We know of all of their, their good attributes. We see that apparently there were the followers of Jezebel. They were the ones that bought her baloney, hook, line, and sinker. Embraced it, followed it, and allowed their life to be shaped by what she was teaching and what she was practicing. We have others who apparently did not buy it. They coexisted, but they weren't part of it. They didn't accept it. They didn't believe it was right. And so they were there not being influenced by uh, what she was teaching and, and her practices. They, they coexisted with her. They were essentially saying, I don't want you to teach. I'm not coming to the Sunday school class you're teaching. If it doesn't affect me, then I'm going to mind my own business. As long as our pulpit teaches the truth, you know, Every church has its own problems, so that's just one that I'm not comfortable with, and so they coexisted. What we don't find, apparently, in this church at all is anybody who opposed her, her teaching, or her practices. You have either followers or people who just kind of went along. There was no confrontation. And Jesus points out that all, therefore, are responsible. They bear the, he's confronting the entire church because you tolerate Those are the people who are not embracing, but he's also confronting the people who have not opposed her and confronted her. And the reason he's saying that is because there is no real love that's shown in this body, at least not toward one another, not toward those who are in error and who are astray. These are people who saw the danger. They didn't buy it, so they realized that it was wrong. And yet, rather than stepping in and confronting, rather than trying to put a stop to it, they allowed the people to continue to practice it, much like somebody would allow a child to be playing along the edge of a highway. It's not my child, it's not my responsibility, but that's what Jesus is confronting. He's confronting those who tolerate that woman, Jezebel, and her practices and her teaching. And the the practical implication of what Jesus is teaching here is that we are responsible for one another and everybody shares the guilt. They didn't all share it equally, and they weren't all going to experience the same consequences, but Jesus is confronting everybody who's part of the church. You can read in there almost the essence of this is the question is, how did she get this far? How did it get this far? And we see part of Jesus' attitude even toward Jezebel in, in the words that are easy to overlook because of the harshness. But Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. 
mean, think about that for a moment. Somebody who is being nicknamed with such a harsh name, who is clearly poisonous for the body of Christ, who's leading the people astray. I mean, if somebody is that far gone, and yet Jesus says, they're not so far gone that my grace wouldn't be sufficient even for her. Had she repented is a clear implication that she also would have been forgiven, restored, and received all the promises of those who belong to God. So there is a great deal of love, even in the intensity that Jesus is speaking toward this woman, but he is still nevertheless correcting and saying, if somebody had loved her and stepped in, how did she get this far without anybody stepping in? Now, there's no guarantee that if somebody confronted her that she, that she would have stopped. But we don't see any indication that they even tried. We are responsible for one another, and we are told in the Scripture when somebody is in error that it is our responsibility as those who love to go and to speak to them. And it's not to condemn. It's not to shun. It's not to boot out. We're told with clear implication, clear, clear instructions. Galatians 6, Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any is an operative word there, you who are spiritual... That means those who are walking faithfully. It's not, a, it's not a degree of spirituality. Those who have the Spirit should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, though, lest you also be tempted. But bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Clear instruction that the body of Christ is to function. And when we see there's error, we go gently, lovingly, and speak in order to bring restoration. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, from, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We see a portrait of a church here who had a lot of things going for it, but it was dysfunctional because the people were willing to overlook rather than get involved in each other's lives and speak truth and love to one another. Because there was no practical love in this way, many in this body are being threatened with serious consequences. Another thing that's interesting is essentially how this woman got in the position of authority to begin with. And it raises the question about what is our authority? I mean, essentially, Jezebel, she made the claim. She must have stood up in Sunday school one day and said, I'm a prophetess. This is what God told me. God speaks to me. God says, and just declared from her own experience, her own inclination, whatever whim she had, perhaps she was simply mistaking whatever she thought for the voice of God. Perhaps she knew that she was corrupting, but she was declaring her own authority, that she had a sensitivity and a pipeline to God, and she would speak in a way that was not found in the Scriptures. Some of it may not have been directly inconsistent with Scripture. There obviously was something that was enticing to these people who were faithful and had substantive faith. It may have been their very characteristic that they were trying to do more than they did at first that drove them, that compelled them, that made her interesting. Because these are people that were passionate. What more can I do? How can I grow deeper? And when somebody who stands up with great confidence and says, I'm hearing from God, let me tell you what we should do, what God's telling me that you should do. You've experienced a claim of a depth that 
is not available to the ordinary person. Somebody who's hungry and zealous to experience all that God has to offer might bite that bait. So it could be their zeal that made them susceptible, but her claim is basically she claimed to have certain experiences. She claimed to have certain revelations, new revelations that she would speak. And for whatever reason, the people believed it. And it's a constant reminder to us that we are inundated both inside the church and outside the church with people who have ideas that are not God's ideas as to what should set up the parameters of truth for our doctrine and for our moral standards. But the word of God alone is the authority. The Holy Spirit is at work and continues to speak to help us to understand, illuminate, to, the light bulb goes off to understand what God has revealed once for all. And it's all been revealed perfectly in Christ. But when we allow people to come into churches and say, but this is what God is saying, or we allow experts in certain fields in the culture to say, this is the real truth, we bank on that as if they are the authority, we are already being sucked out to sea. I'm not suggesting that there is no wisdom to be found in culture, whether it's in science or the arts or anywhere, because there's a lot of beauty, a lot of truth that is reflected, and a lot of things that we gain insight on. And the Bible is not intended to be an encyclopedia that you go to for every question you have. Those of you who want to cook a nice gourmet lunch this afternoon will probably not go look into the standards of the book of Deuteronomy and say, now what were they eating? All right, a little manna, a little quail. Uh, you know, that's, that's not what it's about. It reveals to us who God is, who we are, what God's mind is, what, how God created the world, how things work or supposed to work, and since things are broken, how things can be made right. It gives us very clear principles for every aspect of our life, every relationship, our lives. And the principles are there to be applied, but we have the wisdom that comes from community, from the saints that have gone before us, that we understand. But everything God speaks, that is our authority. It's not to ignore the other things, but we have to be very clear, and our minds need to be constantly renewed in saying, this is the way God says that things work. It works this way. Sometimes that means it chisels off things that we claim to be part of the Christian tradition, but God never said it. Some of those are the things that we get confronted for on, by the world at large. But we are constantly being renewed, not by whatever waves of ideas are coming our way, but constantly being renewed and undergirded by the unchanging word and authority of Christ. So we have essentially a lifeline. And Jesus does give the instruction. He's saying, hold on to what you've got. What do they have? Well, they had a substantive faith. They had the word that God had already given them. Christ, who was the living embodiment of that word, they already had him saying, hang on to these things. And then there are tremendous promises. Because we see in verse 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron when the earthen pots have broken in pieces. Even I myself have received authority from the Father. And Jesus is, 
declaring in this passage, he's, he will return. There's a promise that we hold on to as well. And along with those who hold on to what they already have, there's a promise that when Jesus comes back and reigns, that we will reign with him. But another promise that is related to that, that is both awesome and intimate and hopeful, in verse 28, he says, not only will I give the right to reign, but I will give him the morning star. The morning star is not a promise that you'll have a star named after you. It is not hundreds of millions of tons of cosmic matter. We are told later in the book of Revelation that Christ is the morning star. Jesus is saying, I give not something, I give myself to you. That which is of most value, most intimate, I will give myself to you. I will belong to you, you will belong to me. And the morning star is a title that is also an important metaphor. Because the morning star is the symbol of a new day. It is a reminder to us that no matter how dark the night seems to be, wherever you are, the appearance of the morning star tells you a new day is dawning. The day of the promise of the reign of Christ is a day where the tides are no danger. We will not be tempted. We will not be corrupted. A hard letter with awesome promises pointing us to the one who loves us beyond what we have come, have any idea. But an instruction to hold fast to him and to not any other ideas. May we be a people who belong to Christ, guided by his word, who love one another enough to speak the truth. Father, we do thank you for all you've given to us in Christ. Help us to experience the joy that is ours in him. I pray in his holy name. Amen.